0: Imagine with me that you knew absolutely nothing about God except that he exists. What if, I know it's improbable, but what if somehow everything that you've come to know about God was just erased? All those Sunday school lessons and sermons, Bible reading, books that you've read, your personal experiences walking with God, and also even the testimonies you've heard from other believers, all of it just disappeared You'd be left knowing that there is a God, but nothing about him. And I imagine that that would leave you with some questions. Like, what's his name? What's he like? What does he want from me? Is he scary or exciting? Should I seek him out or hide from him? Does he provide for me or does he want to take from me? You'd be full of questions. And so I imagine you'd be excited to learn that there was a book that answered all your questions and in which God makes himself known to us. And so you got a copy of the book and you opened it to the very first page of the very first book and you started reading. And what is the very first thing on that very first page that God tells us about himself? The very first thing we learn about God in the entire Bible is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first thing you'd learn about God is he is the creator. This is a foundational truth. It's where the Bible begins. And as you read further, you would find an account of how God spoke the world into being out of nothing over the span of six days, culminating in the creation of mankind, people, you and me. And God, at the end of it all and at the end of each day, pronounces it all good. However, as you read still further, you learned about the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, and things begin to click in your mind. You begin to put together some things. As the benedictions of chapter 2, it is good give way to the maledictions of chapter 3, in which God spells out the consequences of their rebellion, consequences we still live in in the midst of today, you would begin to understand why the world is the way it is. You would understand why pandemics exist. You would see why this world is so full of brokenness and death, hurt and disappointment, disease and selfishness and pain. And although sad, this would still be a wonderfully helpful thing to see and understand. Because before there can ever be good news, there must first be bad news. Before a prisoner can learn that he's going to be freed from jail, he has to first be put in jail. And as you continue to read, you would eventually come to see the good news of God's plan to redeem fallen mankind. And you would become acquainted, if you read through to the second half of the book, you would become acquainted with the great central figure of all of history, the God-man, Jesus. The Greek word for gospel literally means good news. And this morning I'm really excited to embark on a journey through the gospel of John, the good news according to John. John was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. He was one of his disciples, one of his inner circle, and he had a front row seat to all of Jesus's teaching, all of Jesus's miracles, and he wrote down an account of what he had witnessed, and it's the good news, according to John. And what is that good news? I'm aware that some of you may be listening to this on the internet or And uh, you you may not be completely aware of all that Christianity teaches. There's a lot of bad ideas out there. And the gospel is a word that Christians kind of throw around like we assume people know what it means. But maybe you don't. Maybe it's just a, a kind of a churchy sounding word and you're not super clear on exactly what I mean. I don't want to assume that everyone understands this word. Gospel, the good news of Jesus, means this. Well, first, let's start with the bad news. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means that we're all sinners. We've all broken God's laws. And according to Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I... I like to always point this out, but when it says there, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the difference between a wage and a gift? Well, a wage is something you earn. It's something you've deserved. When it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death, it means we've all sinned, and we're all going to get what we deserve, which is death, separation from God, wrath, judgment. But the second part of Romans 6.23 but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, what's the difference between a wage and a gift? Well, a wage is something you earn. It's something you deserve. But a, a gift is something that's given to you because of the goodness of the giver. And it is not wrapped up in your merit as the receiver. So God is giving us a gift that we do not deserve. What we deserve, what we've earned, the wages of all that we've done is death wrath, punishment, but God wants to give you a free gift, something you don't deserve, something you haven't earned. That's the point of it all. In Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see? (laughs) Our salvation is not about our goodness. Christianity is not about being good people. It's about recognizing we're bad people and throwing ourselves on the goodness of Jesus, putting all of our trust, all of our faith in the goodness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. In Romans 10.9 and Romans 10.13, it says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that doesn't mean that there's magic in simply saying the name of Jesus what it means is that you call out to him believing who he is, believing in the significance of what he's done on your behalf. And that when you do that, when you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Not saved because you're good or because you're wise or because you've done anything deserving of salvation. You will be saved because it's a gift and you have put your trust in Jesus alone for salvation. That's the good news, that's the gospel. If Jesus had simply made it possible for us now to work towards salvation, that wouldn't be good news, that would be the old news. That would be the same structure that every other religion on the face of the earth has. The one thing that separates Christianity, the good news from all those other belief systems, is that our faith, rests on what God has done, not on what we have done to earn anything from God. In Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're justified by faith, not because of our goodness. In Romans 4, 4 through 5 it says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You'll get what you deserve. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, what saves a person is not our good works. None of us are saved by our works. I think most people just sort of uh, on the street believe that if you're a good person, you will be saved. My, my belief is that, as I've lived here in Aristic County now for a couple years, is that the people of Aristot County are some of the best people I've ever known. There's just a naturally friendly culture up here. People are hardworking. They're honest. They're good neighbors. The problem with most of us here in Aristic County is not our badness. It's our goodness that is not good enough. And I really do believe this is an important message for people to hear and understand and believe that the gospel, the good news, is not that you can work your way out of your sin debt, but that it's already been paid by Jesus. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, the one who just trusts in what Jesus has done, his faith is counted as righteousness. And for that person, according to Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we continue on in Romans eight thirty eight through 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wonderful thing is that what God has given to us, this free gift, he will not now yank away from us. (laughs) He gave it to you knowing who you were. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And to anybody who has, by faith, accepted the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, you begin a new adventure. You, you begin following him, and, and, and it's going to be full of failures and missteps, but along the way, you'll have grace, forgiveness. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the good news of the gospel. Maybe you've never heard it before. Maybe you've never understood it before. Maybe you've been walking around thinking that to be a Christian is to be a good person, and to earn salvation by virtue of how good you are. And the thing that Christians cling to, that we believe with all of our might and main, is not that we're good, but that Jesus was perfect. And this is the basis of our hope. So the Greek word for gospel, the gospel of John, literally means good news. And it's very interesting to me that John's gospel The good news that he writes about begins with the same three words we find at the beginning of our Bibles. Jen just read them a moment ago. The Gospel of John begins with the three words, in the beginning. And coincidentally, or I don't believe it is coincidental, those are also the first words of the entire Bible, the beginning of it all. Let's read those words again. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see, it says there that he was God, and he was in the beginning with God. John is making a case here that Jesus' coming into the world at Bethlehem was not the beginning of a new life. It was a coming into the world of an infinitely old person. (coughs) John is talking about the Trinity. He was God. And he was with God. God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And already these foundational truths are being laid out here with a great economy of language by the Apostle John. We continue on in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It is not by accident that the Gospel of John begins with the same three words as the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, introduces the story of the old creation. And here in John, it introduces the story of the new creation. And in both works of creation, the creative genius and the creative power behind it all is Jesus. The Word who was God and was with God in the beginning and through whom all things were made is now doing a creative work in and through the church to bring about the new creation. I've often thought, how amazing would it be if somehow I could have just sat on a rock somewhere when God spoke Plants into existence on that day of creation. He just said, Let there be plants, and (laughs) all over the landscape, there would have been trees and bushes and grass and ferns. I, I would have loved to have just seen the landscape and topography transform as he just spoke plants into being. What would it have looked like? I wish I could have seen it. Or when he first spoke animals into existence. Or for goodness sakes, when he breathed life into Adam. But the cool thing is, is that same creative power, that same creative genius is at work today in the church. He's doing it again. He's making all things new. And we have a front row seat. In fact, more than that, we're participants in it by God's grace. We can watch that same creative power make things into a new creation today. The parallels between the opening chapters of Genesis and the opening lines of John are striking. The first and most obvious are those first three words, in the beginning. But even beyond that, we hear echoes of let there be light when John writes about Jesus as the light of men that shines in the darkness. The life-giving God of Genesis is still breathing life by the Holy Spirit into the dusty husks of our abandoned frames so that we can know life again just as we did at the first. In him was life, John writes, and the life was the light of men. In the coming weeks and months, we'll be exploring the depths of the gospel of John. But John begins his gospel account by telling us that the thing that God has brought about in the life of a believer, the new creation, It's a work of creation. John's gospel begins with the language of origins, beginnings, creation, the life giver. And this is the language of the Bible as it describes the process by which someone comes to put their faith in Jesus for salvation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. In Ephesians 2.10 it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And there are more passages besides. We could look up Acts 14.15 or 17.24 or Psalm 103, there's loads of passages in the Bible that speaks about the thing God has worked in the life of a believer as a work of creation. So the faith that was brought into existence in your heart as a Christian was brought forth by an act of creation. God spoke it into existence. And the question I want to entertain this morning, and really that's prompted by these opening lines of the book of John, as we meditate on these opening lines of John, is so what? Who, who cares? <laughs> what does it matter if God created faith in us or if we somehow brought it forth through wisdom, understanding, persevering in hard work and research? Why does it matter that we understand our faith in Jesus alone for salvation as something that has been created in us and not that we have cultivated Well, I think it makes five differences, which I want to explore this morning in our time together. When we think of what has happened in us as a believer as a created thing, I think it makes five differences. And the first one is just simply this, and that's assurance. My belief, my deep conviction is if my salvation had anything to do with me, I would have lost it. In Philippians 1.6, it says this, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. And I love that verse. I return to that so often in my prayers and in my thinking because I just love that it's he who began a good work in us sees it through to completion. He's the root and he's the sap. He is the beginning of what has happened in us. He's the creator of it. And he's also the one in which it continues. He maintains it. That which he began, he sees through. And so if you, if you believe that God began your faith, then you can also rest confidently that he is maintaining it. However, if you begin from the faulty place that your faith is rooted in your goodness, your wisdom, your whatever, then it's also maintained by you. And uh, that's not anything I can build my life on. <laughs> Jesus is a rock. He's an immutable rock. He never changes. He, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I'm fickle. I'm up and down. I'm all around. I'm so glad that my salvation was a work of creation, not something I cultivated. And I'm so glad that it is maintained and, cons- and seen through by the same one who began that work as the creator. So just the first difference it makes when we think of what has happened as creation is assurance. Assurance of our salvation, the keeping power of God. He began it and so he maintains it. The second thing is, uh, of, the, of these differences is this. It's the creator-creature distinction. One of the most fundamental differences it makes that we recognize our faith as a created thing, is an awareness in the Christian tradition of the creator-creature distinction. As Christians, we believe that there is a creator of all, and there is his creation, and the two are fundamentally distinct from one another. And not only that, but within the Christian tradition, there are numerous divisions and separations within the created order. For example, the land is separated from the water. Light is separated from darkness, calling one day and the other night. The sky or firmament is separated from the earth beneath. Male and female, he created them. So whereas Christianity tends to emphasize the order of creation by pointing out what delineates one created thing from another and ultimately by defining the created as separate and distinct from the Creator, there are many religious traditions and worldviews that reject this view. And I know it's not a religion, uh, but it is steeped in the belief systems of some of these religions, especially some that are borrowed heavily from Eastern religions. And that's in Star Wars, uh, which George Lucas wrote. In Star Wars, of course, we find the Force. And uh, I know it's a little bit unusual to reference Star Wars in a sermon, but <laughs> that's okay. Uh, do you remember, In uh, I think it was in Return of the Jedi, when Yoda was explaining the Force to his young apprentice, Luke Skywalker, and I promised myself I was not going to do this in Yoda's voice, and I'm going to keep that promise. You're welcome, Internet. Uh, he told him that the Force, quote, surrounds us and binds us. It's in the tree It's in the rock, it's in the X-Wing fighter, it's in the land. Essentially, what Yoda is saying and explaining and that's spelled out explicitly throughout the Star Wars series is that the Force is in everything and everything is the Force. All things are part of one interconnected whole. Another example from pop culture is the movie Avatar that just came out a few years ago. It similarly promotes a view that there is not a creator in his creation— There is the oneness of all things, sameness, with no clear lines drawn between God and us, or between one aspect of creation and another. Animals have the same value and moral weight as mankind. There is no clear divine being at all in the worldview of Avatar. Instead, creation and us and all things are part of the divine. There's a life force, or a cosmic power, or something fuzzy like that. This great feeling in the sky exists to link us together in an unending karmic chain of peace and positivity and oneness. And once again, this is a pretty obvious borrowing of ideas that we find in other world religions and even the New Age movement. However, however, over and against such notions, distinctions are foundationally important to Christian theology and a worldview that is biblical. Owen Strachan writes, The amount of creation, the account of creation, shows us that it is not bad or evil to identify distinctions. Distinctions are what show the brilliance, the superintelligence, the overspilling glory of the created order. He continues, The cosmos is not a soupy mass. It is created with form, shape, and clarity. It is all the more beautiful because of this reality. The order inherent in our world does not owe to an impressively ruthless process of evolution, but to the divine mind. God ordered this world. God made it as he wanted it to be. God is the original maker, the creator, the aesthetic artist who put his own dazzling magnificence on display when he made all things. And when we think about the truth that who we are in Christ is owing to an act of creation, it has the effect of profoundly humbling us. What can we boast about (laughs) When, when the faith that has come to flourish in our hearts did not find its origins in our goodness or our wisdom or our laying hold of it even? It was created there. It was given to us as a gift that we didn't deserve. What we have in Christ is not something that we brought into being. It was something that was created in us. We didn't even cooperate with God in the making of us into a new creation. This is the clear meaning of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There it says explicitly that you were created in Christ Jesus and that this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Again, a gift is something that's given because of the goodness of the giver. So in acknowledging the creator-creature distinction, the Christian humbly recognizes that the power by which they were made new came from a source external to them. And could not have been found within. It also results in a humble acknowledgement that in being made new, a new creation, we have been separated and put into a different category that is distinct from those who remain under the old order, that is under threat of judgment and wrath. In Psalm 103, it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. There it is. We are his. We're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. And by inference, that means that there are those who are not his, that are not his people, that are not the sheep of his pasture. And I do not say that in a celebratory way, as though I delight in others being outside of the pasture of God. Not so. I think a right understanding of the separation of the church from the world should break our hearts for the lost. We were like them at one time. And were it not for grace, we still would be. This should result in making us zealous evangelists and missionaries. Just as we recognize the God-given divisions within the created order, the sky is separate from the sea, the birds from the fish, the man from the woman, We also see a separation in the new creation of the church being distinct and separate from the world. There is the church, there is the world, and we are headed towards two different destinations. All of this finds its foundation, its origins, its root in the knowledge of the creation, the creator-creature distinction. The Bible tells us plainly that when Jesus returns in Matthew 25, He will separate people as one might separate sheep from goats, to the left and to the right. There is a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, immediately after describing a Christian as a new creation, Paul then goes on to say that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the result of becoming a new creation. Not that we would look down on those who remain not new but that we would join with God in the ministry of reconciliation, that we would implore others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, be made new. In becoming a Christian, a new creation, we choose peace with God over peace with this world. We choose a future reward over an earthly reward. We choose a cross in this life in order to receive a crown in the next because we think that is better than chasing after crowns in this life only to find destruction at the end of it. Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We choose a better and an abiding possession over the cheap and temporary things of this world. We choose truth over lies. We choose life over death. We choose to trust God rather than to try to be our own God, our own Savior. We choose the great commission cause as the great cause of our lives. And all of these things set us apart and make us distinct from the surrounding culture. The next thing, I, the third mark I want us to see, the third difference it makes to think about what God has worked in us as a work of creation is to see that we, what is being described as not a, an improved me, but a new me, a new you. Christianity is not about, well, is not firstly about improving you. I think there is some, when we talk about sanctification, and we'll get to there in a second, uh, there is a sense in which we do, by degrees, become more and more like Jesus over time. But when we talk about being a new creation, we are not talking about an improved version of your old self, but a new person. The verse that immediately precedes those two that I just read is Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. I've already quoted it once, but it says again, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It doesn't say if anyone is in Christ, he is much improved. It says he's a new creation. The old is passed away, not the old is augmented. But behold, the new has come. When I was a little kid attending VBS at 4th Presbyterian, just outside of Washington, D.C., they illustrated this verse by pointing us to the way that that a caterpillar undergoes a metamorphosis in the cocoon and emerges as a butterfly and i'm sure if you were a kid once in the church in a vbs program or sunday school or children's church or maybe if you've worked in children's ministry you are undoubtedly familiar with this illustration it's very popular in christian uh, history it certainly was helpful to me as a child to grasp something of the change that is worked by the holy spirit in making a person into a new creation And certainly the idea of becoming a new creation does speak of transformation and metamorphosis. This is inner and outer change. There is a change in our affections that leads to a change in our behavior when we are made new. However, when I think of the truth that we are a new creation, I like that analogy of the butterfly. I would never take take it away. I think it's a great one. But I think the thing that I personally find most precious about this truth is that when God looks on us, he doesn't think of us as improving or even that we are better a little bit. He thinks of us as being new. And that's because unlike sanctification, which is just uh, one of those words that that Christians are the only ones who use, uh, but it means basically this. Sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit makes us more and more like Jesus over time. Sancta means holy, and fication means the process, how it happens. So it's how we're made holy, how we're made more righteous. Unlike sanctification, which is a process that happens by degrees, justification is not a process. We're not more justified tomorrow than we are today. Justification is a once-for-all declaration that we are new, that you've been declared not guilty. And once you are declared justified, you are made right with God forever. That's why Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In, in, In a sense, we've been made new, even as we are putting off the old man and embracing the new. In sanctification, we see the process by which we're made holy, but the fact that you are new is a once-for-all, not-guilty verdict from God called justification. In becoming a Christian, there dawns a new day, a new creation, and when God looks on you, he sees only the perfect righteousness of Christ. You're new. This is a wonderfully comforting thing for me, and for anybody who has baggage from a life lived in the fallen world. Uh, many of us just want to move on from our past failures. Our past sins. Whether they be private or public. And you just want to have a new identity. You not want to not be marked by those things. By past behaviors. And what God says to you is this thing I have worked. You are brand new. This is a new day. You are a new creation. This is the start of a new story that I am working in you. You don't you can put off what you can put away what lies behind, and you can press forward towards the upward call of Christ. It's a wonderful thing to be made new. And all of that finds its root in the truth that this thing has been created. You are a new creation. Uh, the fourth thing I want us to see about This truth, the difference that it makes to be created, is that there is purpose and design in creation. Uh, God is does not just throwing, is not creating things willy-nilly. He creates everything with thoughtfulness, with intentionality, purpose. And one of the great things to know is that just as when you were born naturally, you were born with certain traits characteristics, personalities. I think of baby Edison that was just born this past week to Abram and Lariah. And pretty soon as that baby grows a little bit, you're gonna start to get a sense of the baby's personality. It won't take that long, actually, to start to see the first glimpses of what kind of human being this is going to be. And uh, the smiling and the laughing and all of the stuff that's gonna go with it. And that baby was born naturally with certain gifts and personalities. And the same is true when you're born again. When you become born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you and gives you gifts. You've been crafted by your Creator to worship Him through service. You've been uniquely crafted by your Creator to worship Him through service. The first creation in Genesis is a natural creation. The second new creation that we're going to see in John is a spiritual birth a spiritual creation and again i return to ephesians 2:10 if for we are god's workmanship in other words you were created with purpose and intentional design by a master craftsman ephesians 2:10 begins for we are god's workmanship created in christ jesus to do good works which god prepared in advance for us to do so you were created Your workmanship. And you were created to do something, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You you were created to do something. And one of the greatest joys in the Christian life is is awakening to a sense of what that something is. Uh, I'm still growing into an awareness of my calling, uh, but I love opening God's word for God's people. I'm beginning to recognize God's design in some of you, my brothers and sisters. I've seen the way that you serve and surprise your church family, the way that you uh, are a blessing and a help, the way that you use your gifts to worship your creator God through service to your fellow man. I've seen some of you joyfully roll up your sleeves and get to work to be a blessing and a help to the most unworthy in our community or those who are deemed most unworthy by most people. You were made for this. Your design, your God-given desires and gifts, they line up beautifully with opportunities to serve, to be a blessing, to be a help. And this is all a matter of creation. You were designed with purpose. It's workmanship to do good works. I, I think this is very uh, poignantly described in the Old Testament, in Exodus 36.1. It's a section of Scripture where they're talking about the construction of the tabernacle. And it says this, Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded." Uh, the, the line in that passage, in that verse, Exodus 36, 1, that I have underlined in my Bible is in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence. <laughs> the Lord put it in there. It's creation. It's creation. It's the same God who said, let there be light, saying let this thing manifest within the life of this follower of mine, that he might use it to my glory to be a blessing and a help to others. Yes, all Christians have been crafted by their creator to worship him through service. And the giftedness within the church is diverse, very, very diverse. Just as diverse as the creation we see outside. And all the different plants and the animals and the different elements and the way it all works together. Similarly, in the body of Christ, there is this great diversity of gifting. And one again, one of the greatest joys in the Christian life is an awakening to the sense of who you are, how God designed you. The last thing, and I want to finish with this thought, the last difference that it makes when we think about the faith that has been wrought within us as a creative work is that we are encouraged by that information to pray creatively. And by creative prayer, I don't mean innovative, novel, new, or interesting ways of praying. I mean creative in the sense of praying to a creator God to create something that does not already exist. And something which perhaps cannot be brought into existence through human effort alone. In Romans 4.17, God is described as the God who calls into existence things that do not exist. He's a creator. And I want us to think about this for a minute here as we close. He calls into existence things that do not exist. He's the creator. He creates. And by calling on the creator, our prayers are creative in the sense that we are calling on the creator to create things which are beyond our abilities to bring into existence. God is all-powerful. And his omnipotence was most dramatically displayed when he spoke the world into being. One moment, light, galaxies, planets, the cosmos, and all that it contains, none of it existed. And then God simply willed them into existence by force of his will, by his word. He spoke and they appeared. That's creative power. And do you remember when we were studying in Ephesians 3, that prayer? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. Wow. (laughs) That's right. When we pray, we pray we call upon a creator to bring into existence things that don't yet exist. The prayer of faith calls out to a God who, yes, he can mend what is broken. He can build up what has been ruined. He can heal what is strict, sick. He can strengthen what has become weakened. He can do all these things, but he can do even greater things than these. He's the creator who can call into being that which was not there before. He can bring faith into an unbeliever's heart. He can call it out of nothing, And because we're praying to the great omnipotent creator, we must never despair of anyone being saved or any problem being overcome because to God, all problems are the same size, smaller than him. I didn't come up with that line. I don't know who did, but it's a good one. All problems are smaller than God. Think of the hardened heart of a sinner, a stubborn, unbelieving spouse a wayward child a person hopelessly mired in drug addiction or someone who is seemingly too old and too settled in their ways to ever change and embrace the gospel these people we know are caught up irreversibly in a ruinous and destructive current they don't need improvement they need to be made new so we should pray creatively We should call upon the one who is able to do abundantly more than all that we could ask or imagine to create new things out of nothing in their heart. Make them a new creation. Well, brothers and sisters, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we call upon you right now as the Creator God. Father, we thank you for the assurance that that gives to us, that you who began a good work in us will see it through to completion, that even in life's up and downs are many failures, you who began a work in us are seeing it through. Even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Father, we thank you for that good gift. Father, we thank you that there is a difference between us and you. Even as we strive to be like you in character, we enjoy your essence, which is so much higher than we are. You are the creator and we are your creatures and we love it. We love being yours. We delight in how you are. Father, we... uh, are grateful for the way that being a created thing awakens us to a sense of our design, our purpose in you. And Father, we ask you, Lord, that you would more and more reveal to us who we are, what your design was when you spoke us into existence, when you spoke faith into existence in our hearts. Father, help us to know how you, the creator God, has crafted, you to worship, crafted us to worship you through service. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us. um, Well, Lord, train our hearts upon something you want us to be praying creatively. God, what do you want us to pray into existence? What does not yet exist in our community, in the lives of people we know, that you want us to call upon you as the creator to, to bring forth by the power of your will? Father, we know that you are honored by a church that asks God-sized things of you. And we want to be that kind of church. Father, I pray for you to create what is needed in the lives of my friends. Give them, Lord, by an act of creation, all that is needed for, for what's laying ahead of them. Father, we love you, we trust you, we are so grateful for the way that you have created us new. Father, help us to be used by you as your church to bring others out of darkness and into the light. For in Christ is life, the light of men. Father, I thank you for this word from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. State Road, have a wonderful week. I love you guys, and we'll be in touch.